Hi, I'm Dubba. I'm the director of Music Tech Fest. Thanks so much for listening to the MTF podcast. Now, we're going to go a little off script today. Normally, you'll hear interviews actually conducted on stage at MTF on the podcast. However, as it happens, I'm in New York right now representing MTF on a project with the Swedish consulate over here, as well as Swedish Music Export and the Swedish Institute, introducing some fantastic artists from Sweden, obviously, to US press and music industries. Now, since I'm over here, I took a bit of time out to catch up with a couple of old friends that I haven't seen since my last visit to New York, and it's been a while, including an incredible musician by the name of Dee Dee Jackson. I thought since we were having a chat, it would be nice to capture some of that and make a podcast out of it, and I'm really glad I did. We talked everything from children's TV to avant-garde jazz, orchestral arrangements, music education, The Tonight Show, and the music of Prince. It was an absolute pleasure to spend a bit of time with Dee Dee. Have a listen, and I'm sure you'll see why. Enjoy. So I'm sitting here with Dee Dee Jackson, who's an internationally respected and renowned pianist. Um, I want to say jazz pianist, but right. you're more than a jazz pianist because you yeah, do a lot yeah. of classical music as well. Well, yeah, I've actually shifted gears uh, since we last talked because I interviewed you, uh, interviewed you for my podcast many years ago. We were just trying to decide how long ago it was. It might have been 10 years ago or something. A decade. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And since then, I've also been writing a lot of music for media and getting much more involved directly in technology. And I actually won an Emmy Award for the first time a couple of years ago, which yeah, was congratulations exciting. Congratulations on that. Thank you. That. Yeah, and just doing a lot of things you know, with technology more, more directly. But I also am directing a jazz program here at Brooklyn College, the Global Jazz Masters Program, so certainly uh, very heavily involved in that as well. Fantastic. Can mm. we just name drop very briefly? Kind oh, of, people that you've, of you've, course. People yeah. that you've worked with? Uh, oh, well, I mean, um, I really got associated with this sort of post-loft jazz uh, group of musicians, and they kind of embraced me when I was younger. People like David Murray of the World Saxophone Quartet, the late Hammett Blewett, which is very sad. He just passed away recently. A great, mm-hmm. uh, you know, world-class uh, originator on the baritone saxophone, and then slightly younger people like James Carter and uh, uh, other loft players like Billy Bang, and uh, just the, you know, I've played with so many different people. I've actually been working a lot with The Roots now, who are certainly not uh, jazz musicians per se, but who actually have a surprising background in sort of avant-garde jazz. Okay, sorry, what are you doing with Roots? I have uh, I've done a lot of stuff with them, actually, over the last several years, from uh, performing with them at Radio City Music Hall and Madison Square Garden, including some orchestral arrangements I wrote of their of their pieces for uh, for the Radio City Music Hall performance. Um, I was recently working uh, a little bit more in kind of a back uh, room capacity, playing the piano and arranging, uh, writing out charts and things like that for Tariq, who's working on a Broadway-bound musical that nobody knows about yet, so I'm not going to mention the name of it. Uh, I just did a bunch of uh, symphonic prints arrangements uh, Arrangements. There's a tour of yeah, we're going to talk about that. Yeah, yeah, going on, and that was asked. I was asked to do that also by Questlove, and uh, I conducted them on the Tonight Show a year ago. An arrangement I did for them, and did the arrangements on the last couple of CDs for for uh, strings and played a little piano. So a lot of just whenever they call me, it, it's sort of like. Um, getting sucked into this cool universe from my normal sitting in front of a computer or teaching life and having kind of access to this kind of very cool, glamorous realm for for five seconds, and then I go back to my relatively normal life in comparison afterwards. Sure. Because if Wikipedia is to be believed, you sort of stopped working in 2007. Uh, Apparently so, yes. Clearly I'm not uh, observing Wikipedia that much or updating it, apparently. But uh, those were your sort of your jazz albums kind of uh, on... on, It was Just In Time and what was the other label? I was on a major label on BMG for a couple of CDs. I had my little major label moment for a minute as well. And these are sort of headline releases with your your name on the catalog. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I did about 12 CDs total, uh, either as leader or co-leader. 
leader. I had a, a co-led group, one of which was with Hammett Blewett um, and a more Chama Senegalese uh, uh, djembe player. Um, and yeah, it was just all my own original music and, and so on. But you're right, yeah, I, I stopped recording uh, in uh, 2007. And since then, I, I've kind of made that kind of interesting, to me at least, left turn into the, uh, writing for media, writing even children's television, like the Wonder Pets and shows like that, uh, that are uh, the writing for which are populated tremendously by other jazz musicians who go into it with this, I think, uh, I say biasly, very open-minded attitude and just mm. an ability to just, you know, do some new conceptual thing every day that they're called upon to do. So, uh, yeah, it's been very much that kind of uh, universe that I've been uh, dealing with since. Uh, so no, no real CDs other than soundtrack CDs. I, I did a, a, a movie recently called You and Me, uh, and it was just released in digital media literally today. And uh, also the soundtrack album has just come out today as well. So people check that out. It's a little jazzy, at least. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. And uh, so your Emmy, which uh, for, for international audiences, Emmy means television, right? So, oh, yes. Yeah. So that's so it's a soundtrack for a TV show that you won an award for? Uh, yeah, yeah. This children's show called Pig Plus Cat, which was really surprisingly successful kind of hit show on, on uh, the PBS network in, in the States. And um, won, I think, seven Emmys total in every possible category. And a uh, very creative children's show uh, where we wrote just any variety of styles of music and you know you'd be asked to do it and then you'd have like four days to come up with you know hip-hop meets country or whatever it might wow. be or classical stuff and they used real uh, instruments and it, you know really took the music uh, component very seriously so we were very happy to, to win an award uh, in the composition department essentially right i'm interested to hear you say real instruments as if they're sort of yeah they're artificial instruments yeah how do you kind of define sort of because we talked very briefly about music yes. tape right at the beginning what What's real and what's not? Well, it depends on what the intent is. So I, I guess what I mean really more specifically is whether you're using uh, virtual instruments just for budgetary reasons or whether um, you know, you, you're using them on purpose for what they might offer that would be, uh, differentiate themselves from other uh, instruments and so on. So, so this show, instead of just using virtual that is trying to sound real uh, desperately and not succeeding, which often yeah. happens in, in, in children's television and in certain cases elsewhere, uh, they really make a point to make sure that anything that's supposed to sound like a real instrument, they actually use a real drummer and a bass player and a guitar player and a couple of horns each episode and, and that kind of thing. So it's something that they're, they're quite proud of and, and that we think has made a difference. Wonder Pets. Similarly, I, I wrote for that show uh, a few episodes, and they used to crowd a whole like orchestra into their South, South Street Seaport studio. It was at least twenty some odd, twenty five, twenty seven musicians or something, and uh, they they might sweeten it with with MIDI, but it was fundamentally real uh, for the most part as well. So, so what's your approach to, um, let's say, technology, uh, production yeah. wise? Do you have a, a particular recording setup that you use? Do you have a... Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm still, you know, uh, sp I spend a lot of time, hours in front of my computer. I use Logic Pro as my main uh, uh, kind of DAW or DAW. And um, for notation, I've been using increasingly Dorico, which I think is the, the future for, for that category and, and may very well overlap with DAW functionality as well. Uh, and yeah, I've just been slowly building up, as I'm sure everybody does who's in this kind of field, a library of what I consider hopefully the best sounding thing in every category, at least as far as acoustic emulation possible, in order to do very fully realized mock-ups, and in many cases use that as the finished product as well. So that part is not terribly unusual. I have a studio. It's right off of my uh, bedroom in this house that we moved to outside of New York City in Maplewood. And uh, one of the requirements when we were house hunting was to find like a house that would have a mysterious room that was unused that I could actually use to make it into my studio. So I was looking at attics and basements. And we came to this house and there was this giant room adjacent to the master bedroom 
And I can't, for the life of me, understand what it would have been used for because you'd have to go through the bedroom to get to this enormous room. It wasn't a walk-in closet, maybe a baby room or something. So we saw that and we're like, okay, that we're going to move to this house, basically. And that's become essentially my studio. And grand piano in the center? Is that No, was... I would like. And, you know, I've actually done uh, full recordings, uh, including the soundtrack album for this film, You and Me. It was a lot of solo piano. And I actually admittedly and perhaps uh, shamefully used... Uh, the uh, the ivory plugin, you know, in, instead of an actual instrument, because it's gotten to the point where, it, to me, I can make that sound a lot better uh, than uh, any other real world piano I might want to try to have access to. Uh, for my, uh, you know, CDs, I was a Bosendorfer artist, so they would they would kind of ship in the hundred fifty thousand dollar Bosendorfer Imperial Grand. But for my film projects, not quite as practical to do that. So so it works out quite well. Right, sure. So you perform live in front of a grand piano yeah. most of the time. Yeah, when I do play live, uh, I. I try to insist and, and use the, the real thing. Uh, again, it's, it's always a, a question of the intent. So if, it, if I'm trying to make it a real thing, then I want a real piano. And mm. if I'm trying to mess with some other stuff and, and merge hybrid textures, then I'll use something else. Because that's a phenomenal piece of technology in its own right. What, the piano? The piano. Yeah, 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 one of the first, really, you know, in, in a yeah. certain way, that in terms of uh, resonating yeah, yeah. The culture. It's amazing. So, okay, the Prince thing. Tell, yes. me, about, tell me about that. Well, um, the Prince estate, after Prince died, uh, they basically sanctioned uh, Questlove to, uh, or Amir, as we call him, Amir Thompson, to uh, to curate a whole uh, program of, of his music arranged for full orchestra. And uh, so he, I wasn't the only person called up, but he called me up, and he, he just gradually gave me more to do, I guess because I kept, you know, getting it done or whatever. So I ended up doing about nine arrangements, including a lot of... Uh, of uh, some of his tunes that were from Parade, they were a little more obscure, as well as like Purple Rain and things like that, which I had, I think, less than 24 hours to do. And he was like, arrange Purple Rain. He, he asked me at 5 p.m. and I needed to like hand in the charts for the orchestra first thing the next morning or something. Uh, and it was this long, you know, 13 minute arrangement of it and so on. Uh, but yeah, so I just I, I just did these arrangements uh, partially inspired by his own kind of MIDI sessions and mocked them up using Dorica. It was actually the first time I used that new uh, program, which I think is excellent for notation. And when you say his own MIDI sessions, you're saying Prince's MIDI sessions? Uh, not, sorry, yeah, I should clarify. No, not Prince's MIDI sessions, but actually Questlove's MIDI sessions. So, okay. so they have the Roots basically have a whole um, dressing room that they have uh, kind of uh, souped up, essentially, to become a recording studio uh, backstage at The Tonight Show, where, mm -hmm. of course, they're the house band there. And so any projects that I've done with them, uh, they basically use that for rehearsal. They have an on-call on uh, engineer, named, an excellent engineer named Stephen Mandel, who basically records everything they ever do, did. You know, like the, the theme song, all of the walk-on music, everything is just recorded. They do edits, they t voice over to tell you what they want, and then by the time you leave the rehearsal, uh, Stephen will edit something and tell you exactly what he wants to do. Mm -hmm. So for the uh, the Prince arrangements, they just apparently got together and they just started jamming and adding different keyboard textures, and I had to kind of, you know, kind of extrapolate the, what they gave me and uh, by ear and you know, uh, to kind of blow it up for orchestra and then add my two cents and, and all the normal stuff one might do for orchestration and arranging gigs. Kind of a dream gig, really. It was a lot of fun other than the, the deadline because it was like nine charts in a week or something like that oh. that I had to fully arrange or, or based upon what they gave me and then tweak and uh, orchestrate and, and then notate and make look nice because I didn't have enough time basically to hire a, a copyist or something. Yeah. Uh, so it was, it was, it was tiring, but uh, it was very exciting. I went and saw the performance at the King Center. Actually, they're coming to, to London. I think their last performance uh, after having toured like 50, 50 uh, cities in mostly in the U.S., but also across Europe uh, most recently, will be at the Royal Albert Hall uh, next week in London. So, so that'll be a lot of fun. Wow. And they're not straightforward pop songs either, are they? 
No, they're all very quirky, and as is typical of Questlove, they always want to put like a, a left brain, uh, uh, or not a left, a left-handed turn kind of spin on things. Uh, they hired me also to do the theme song for uh, Detroit, this uh, Catherine Bigelow film. They wanted to present it for the first time uh, on The Tonight Show, mm -hmm. and... Um, but as, as was typical of The Roots, they did not want to just do the version that was on the CD, which was already a, a fantastic version. You know, it was already very cool. They'd gone into this sort of retro 60s-style studio in Long Island City in in, uh, in Queens and used all authentic 8-track machines and that kind of, you know, mic with the two sides recording into mono at the same time for the two horns and all of that. So it was already very hip and, and very uh, retro combined with hip-hop, uh, but they wanted to completely uh, blow it up and do something different. So, again, I went to The Tonight Show backstage and... Steve Mandel recorded and Questlove talked over it and said, do this and try this. And so I completely, uh, you know, reworked it a little bit and uh, conducted it on The Tonight Show as well. So, yeah, that's the kind of stuff that I've done with them. Whenever they need something that's a little quirky, I think I'm like their avant-garde, pseudo-jazzy guy that, you know, they hire to kind of go in and do some interesting spin on something that they've already done. Yeah, it seems like they wouldn't be that intimidated by an avant-garde jazzy guy, though. No, I mean, in fact, their manager, uh, their late manager, sadly, and... and uh, uh, producer essentially Richard Nichols, uh, who was really kind of uh, very uh, simpatico or kind of like two sides of the same coin with with Questlove. Really, they they just became one entity, even though nobody knew about this guy, this man behind the curtain. Uh, but he um, he used to be a radio avant-garde uh, DJ in Philadelphia, and he would play all of the kind of music of the people. It, it turns out that I've since you know started to play with like all the world saxophone guys, and he was just a fan of the post seventies loft jazz scene and and beyond. And Questlove heard him on the radio before they had formed the Roots, and he was so enamored of the music he was hearing that he started to record this DJ's time when he was on the air and all the music he was playing. And then Questlove and Richard Nichols at one point finally met. And among the things that came up was Questlove was like, man, you got to check out this DJ. I've been recording this stuff and check this out. And, and, and Richard was like, well, that was me, you know. And so a friendship was formed and they went on to form the roots, essentially. Yeah. Tell me about where we are right now. Uh, we are in a rather old uh, room. Oh, you mean the, we're actually at Brooklyn College, uh, the main campus of Brooklyn College. And uh, I uh, recently started teaching here after teaching at Hunter College for many years, more as an adjunct. This job I'm doing now is technically a bit more kind of like a full-time job, even though it doesn't thankfully take up the entire week, so I can still do a lot of outside projects as we've been talking about. Um, but yeah, so I've been hired here to help um, run their Global Jazz Master's program. Mm -hmm. uh, but they also have a separate facility uh, called the Fierstein Graduate School of Cinema, which is located right on a movie studio lot, one of the few like big movie studio lots on the East Coast, uh, Steiner Studios, uh, right in the Brooklyn Navy Yard, uh, a bit of a ways from here. Uh, by Subway, and uh, so I'm teaching media scoring there. So here, I come here on Tuesdays and teach jazz, essentially. We're, as I mentioned, doing a big final uh, concert tonight of my own compositions and some Global Jazz Masters originals as well. And then tomorrow at, like, I think it's 6 in the morning, it turns out tomorrow I have to get up and drive into Fierstein and, and teach, you know, media scoring and studio recording techniques and things like that. Mm. So is the teaching a kind of a, is that something that all prominent jazz musicians end up doing, or is it? 
Um, not all. I mean, I went through an early phase. I, actually, when we were talking, I might have been on the tail end of the, the phase where I was really trying to get out and tour and, you know, get a, go all over the world as I, you know, thankfully subsequently ended up doing, certainly as a sideman and then ultimately as a leader. But, you know, you get, you go through, life goes in phases. And, and there was a point where I started having a family. I wanted to settle down. It happened to coincide with all of the new technologies and music that had been kind of finally getting more accessible and, and frankly affordable. Um, so it was a good time for me to dive more into music tech. I think, again, when I met you, I was just kind of beginning that whole process. And that led to me kind of really giving up being on the road regularly. I go out every once in a while when I'm asked to uh, and just spend a lot of time writing for media. And in a weird way, this has become, this teaching thing has become almost like a, a new, yet another kind of third phase where I'm being called upon uh, more regularly to, to do it and, and really be part of, a, of an academic program for the first time. So it's exciting for me. I, I love mixing things up, uh, even project to project, but even just, you know, life-wise or music career-wise every mm -hmm. few years, you know, kind of refresh things and try something new. And it's essentially what's going on right because I remember when we met, I'd been blogging for uh, two or three years at yeah. the time and, and writing stuff and putting it online. And suddenly out of the blue, somebody I'd heard of right, right. Uh, was getting in touch and saying, can we meet up? And, yeah, yeah, that's so, right. Yeah. Which, is, which is fascinating. I mean, because uh, your interest, because I was writing about music and technology and, yeah, and yeah. you know, the internet for independent musicians and so yeah, on. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, uh, but you obviously had a, a thirst for that and an yes. interest in that way early. Yeah. Um, where did that come from? I mean, I was always flirting with a fascination with technology. If anything, I really had to avoid dealing with it too soon because I knew I would just never become a jazz musician at the time because I knew I was just such a tech person and, and so into that. I was into, you know, earlier analog keyboards, which uh, ironically uh, to me, or humorously maybe to me, have become like cool retro things now. That studio where um, I was doing some work with The Roots, that kind of retro studio that was kind of uh, modeled after, as I was saying, like 8-track tape machine, all the 60s kind of technology. I think there was a Juno 106 there, and that was like one of my first synthesizers. Yeah. And I'm like, well, this was like in my father's place under my bed back, back at home now, yeah. but now it's considered cool, even like the M1 and all those things. And Not just cool, but expensive. And expensive, yeah, and desirable. So, uh, so I did, you know, I was into it early on, but then I really became very serious about uh, first classical piano, then jazz. Uh, and again, when technology became accessible, and right around the time I met you a couple of years before, uh, I just dived in whole cloth and um, started to really uh, get get into that world uh, very much, and uh, have really never stopped. Because you were on the internet more than most of your peers. Yeah. I, it's funny, I, I still remember the old, not to completely date myself, but the old Rec Music Blue Note uh, news group. You yeah, know? yeah, yeah. And, Newsnet. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. And I used to, uh, in fact, not too long ago, I was curious. And I was like, yeah, I was definitely posting when, at the, the dawn of the internet. Uh, yet another parallel with this sort of uh, desire for people to go back uh, and be nostalgic for what was you know, happening back then. My, my son, who's 12 now, um, is all over uh, Reddit. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, that's basically Usenet all over again. And he's do and he's trying to explain, well, you know, you can go and post things to discussion groups and people will, you know, respond to you. And I think that's kind of old school. Yeah, BBS forum, we've, we've done that. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. So uh, not to mention, of course, uh, uh, somewhat tangentially related, like there's the show Stranger Things, you know, on Netflix, which is all about 80s culture. So now my son is totally into 80s music. So he's basically listening to the same music that I was listening to when I was his age yeah. and introducing some of it. Like, hey, man, dad, you should check out Sting. And I'm like, well, okay, I'm kind of already familiar with the dude and, yeah. you know, and all of that. So, wow. yeah, it's, it's pretty fascinating how things come around. And and how did you come across my stuff just out of 
You had that book, wasn't it? Uh, it was like 25 things you have to do, or new, what was it? The new uh, music? 20, yeah, 20 things you must know about New music, music strategies. Yeah, new music said. strategies with the blog. I yeah, love yeah. that. I just, I fell in love with all of those things in terms of all of the advice that you, you gave me. And then that kind of brought me on the, like a rabbit hole of following all the different activities that you had done. And I forget where we were at at the, you know, in terms of the chronology of what you've done since at that stage. And I'm, I'm trying to remember, I should review the, the podcast. Maybe for research for this meeting, I should have reviewed our interview from yeah, 10 years absolutely. ago. I, I, I forget time, what we even I? talked about. Yeah, but yeah. I just remember we were just talking about technology and sample libraries and different things. But you like went that straight into making a podcast. I mean, really early on. Podcasting, I think the, the first podcast was like late 2004, early 2005. Yeah. And you were already on it in 2006. That's true. And it was weird because it, it was a lot harder more recently. Like, I, I admire anybody who does one now because there's so many of them. I tried another one recently and I was like, oh, I'm, you know, like 50 people listening and stuff because it's harder. But back Back then, you could get like a couple thousand plus people immediately just because you were the only person doing it. So I, I might have had one of the first jazz podcasts, perhaps, I don't know, or jazz-related podcasts. And it was actually part of Artist Share. I think maybe we talked about that, too, mm -hmm. which was sort of a early, uh, uh, you know, uh, Kickstarter-type uh, technology. It's still around, but of course, since then, we've had, had all of these other similar things that have, that have taken off. Uh, so that was also rather uh, unique at the time. Mm. So. so what's next? Oh, man. I don't know. I, I think... I was talking to somebody about this recently that career-wise, and maybe it's because you have a family and it gives you a different perspective on, on that kind of urgency of having to just frantically make it and do something different. Uh, but I, but I, I have to say that when I was a jazz musician, I was very almost to the point of obnoxiousness directed, or probably of the point of obnoxiousness to other people besides myself, because it had probably appeared like, who is this guy? Why is he so hungry for, for success or trying to get out there and you know having opportunities to play and all of that? So since then, I, I realized that I've kind of been very maybe weirdly open to things that come my way, and it's actually worked out okay, knock on wood. Uh, I mean, if you look at what I've done, it's all, it's the things don't always seem to have like a direct connection to each other, uh, and yet I always feel like there's a through uh, line between them all. Maybe it's just that they're all my own thing, and I'm trying to bring whatever it is that I'm about to all of those different uh, uh, projects, no matter how eclectic uh, they may seem, from avant-garde jazz to children's television or writing for the roots or teaching or whatever it might be. Uh, and I think going forward, I, I, I have the goal to kind of keep that kind of mentality open. I'm certainly enjoying what I'm doing right now at Brooklyn College. So the immediate future, I want to help build this program and, and really create a master's degree, which is what it's focused on, uh, that does not teach jazz in the conventional way, uh, which is more, you know, scale court relationships and like a strict adherence to tradition and all of that. And really uh, kind of um, imbue it with the same, hopefully, uh, not to be too presumptuous, but kind of conceptual open-mindedness that I've tried to bring to not only what I've done as a jazz musician, but everything that I've tried to do, musically speaking, um, and really kind of encourage that. I mean, to me, that's very exciting uh, to have the opportunity uh, to push that. And it's also considered uh, global jazz because we want to incorporate other ways of conceptually thinking, including borrowing from other world cultures and, and things like that. So so that's sort of on the immediate uh, radar. But I also want to continue certainly writing for media. Uh, there's a few projects, uh, you know, in the uh, in process now that I'm not allowed to talk about, but are, are based upon uh, some children's stuff and some some other uh, projects that I'm uh, kind of in line to to be involved in uh, shortly. And I would like to. Now that I'm teaching more jazz after many years, um, not emphasizing it quite as much, I would like to perform more. And, and um, you know, after our uh, president, whose name shall go unmentioned, because you can go into a room and say his name and close the door, and then people will just be angry and fighting and talking for two years after that. Uh, but the president, whose name will go unmentioned, he, um, after right after he was elected, I, like maybe many other artists, 
was so frustrated and, and you know wanted to vent, and so I basically wrote about a, an album's worth of music ready to go. I have one tune called uh, uh, D F T, so Donald fucking Trump, you know, just stuff like that, where I just wanted to get things off my chest. So I would like to, at some point, hopefully relatively soon, record this album and just kind of get that out there as well. So you know, a few different things. One more thing to add to your list of things to do in the near future. Yes. So let's get you to a music tech fest. Yeah, that would be fantastic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would love to do that. Thanks yeah. so much for doing this today. Thank you. Yeah, great to see you again. All right, cheers. All right. Hey, thanks so much for listening to the MTF Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, review, and so on. And if you can think of someone else who might like it, send them a link. Much appreciated, and talk soon. Cheers. 